Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Actually home from Build while we're recording this. Uh, but this is all out of order, isn't it? So, it is. Yeah. You're yeah. going to hear the Build shows later. Uh, this is earlier. Right. But we wanted to do the show after Build just because of the content. Yes. And they, yeah, the, the announcements. But of course, you've already heard the announcement show by now because uh, mm-hmm. you can hold .NET Core 3 things out. Interesting mm-hmm. problems. But uh, good to be home. You red-eyed at home, my friend. I did. I got like four hours of sleep, man. Wow. I slept with a hundred people at the same time You're, last night. All your closest friends. On the red eye. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that whole we're all breathing the, the same air thing in the airplane, it's really not true. The air turnover rate on an airplane is really, really high. It's about three minutes of air. It's got to be because how easy is it for them to change the air? Well, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's constant. So they literally, and it's basically coming in from the front of the plane and going out the back of the plane. So there's actually a steady airflow. So there's a case to be made if you're going to have a smoking section, put it in the back. <laughs> if you're going to have a coughing section, they should be in the back. There you go. Yeah, because yeah. the, the, the germs flow backwards. That is true. That's right. All right. Yep. Enough of that little geek out. Let's get to Better Know Framework. All right, man, what do you got? So I found this site that checks for malware, checks your websites for malware and security problems from the outside. So it, it basically you enter a URL. And it's Sucuri, S-U-C-U-R-I dot net. And you go there and you enter a URL to your site and it checks the website for known malware, blacklisting status, website errors, and out-of-date software. And that part of it is free. Of course, they offer products to help you, you know, once you do have a problem to, to help you get rid of them. Right. That The same way that some of the malware scanners also yeah. you know, will scan for free and then say, you know, if you bought a... Retail product, it's even better. And the reason that we had to do this and the reason that I found it was one of my sites um, had these weird errors and people were getting, you know, the error that should you proceed, this site is not safe, you know, how the browsers do that. And uh, so I went and I went to a particular comment on a, you know, using the discuss engine, the discuss engine, whatever they call it. And, you know, warning, your computer has been infected with a virus. Do not close your browser. Do not turn it off. Press the button to clean it right now. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm going to do that. Good old spear phishing. Well, it turns out it was a problem with Discuss. And, you know, they sell ads and sometimes unscrupulous advertisers get through and and that's what happens. So that that's what happened, and I basically had to turn it off on this particular website. Interesting. I did scan yeah. Run As Radio, and apparently Run As is blacklisted, but only by security. Apparently, Google and Norton and Site Advisor and Spam House and Yandex—they all think I'm fine, but security doesn't like me. Huh? That's weird. Yeah. Interesting. Just, I'm always worried well, anyway, the- when a blacklisting site's like, "I'll sell you a product because you're blacklisted by us." Yeah, and everybody else loves you. Yeah, it's fine. I'm like, okay. Well, there you go. That's what I got. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1041, which goes all the way back to September 2014, which is not a coincidence because the last time Mr. Watson was on our show talking yeah. about .NET performance. And this comment comes from Brad Collins, who's asking a question about string handling, which is one of those, you know, sort of intensive things, uh, resource-wise, if you're not careful. And right. uh, Brad says... What about string.format? How does it perform compared to string builder and other string concatenation? Many times I prefer string.format to concatenation because I find it more readable, which I think is a fair thing. Like you got to read your code, right? Concatenation expressions tend yeah. to get long, so you end up having to break them up into multiple lines. Furthermore, right. there's the noise of opening and closing quotes and concatenation operators. How many times have you counted your left and right quotes over the years? Uh, in contrast, when you f- use format string, you use it, uh, it's shorter and you can see the entire string. So there's no noise to wade through. 
And Ben at the time, and this admittedly is four years ago, said, you know, generally string formatting will have worse performance than pure concatenation. However, the devil is in the details. If your concatenations aren't pure, that is, if you're calling to string with format specifiers, well, that's just formatting by a different name. And of course, nothing is the gospel truth until the profiler says it's true. Right. So test, test, test. Nothing else really matters. And I thought it was a good one. Just, you know, thinking about the details of performance. And if you're doing lots of string manipulation, we've seen this over the years with .NET. You can suck up a ton of time in there. It's not an easy thing to uh, hmm. to do if you care about the performance for it. Yeah. So, Brad, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Please. (laughs) (laughs) It's like taking my wife, only different. (laughs) Uh, Let's bring on our guest. Ben Watson has been a software engineer at Microsoft for almost 10 years. There he was one of the principal developers of a high-performance query platform in use by Bing, Cortana, Windows, Office, and Xbox, and other Microsoft services. Through the process, he became a passionate .NET performance advocate. He is the author of the book Writing High-Performance.NET Code, the second edition of which was just released, and in his spare time he enjoys books, music, the outdoors, and spending time with his wife and children, and they live near Redmond, Washington. Welcome back, Ben. Thanks. Great to be back, guys. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And before we get started, I wanted to just uh, say congratulations to the ASP.NET team for, you know, making performance a priority and surpassing the highest, uh, the most performant um, web server out there. Yeah, they've done amazing work. Yep, they certainly have. All, all built on .NET Core. Exactly. Yeah, I th- actually think it was a while ago. It was a few rounds back that they actually got to the top because one of the big hits on the Tech Empower uh, benchmark these days was the uh, the Spectre and Benchmark or Spectre and uh, what was the other one? The two the, the, the two hacks on the Intel chip that forced them to decrease performance on them to make mm. them more secure. And it's kind of thrown everybody's benchmark in a, in a tizzy. Everything got slower and not symmetrically. So... Huh. We're, we're kind of at a weird time for, for benchmarking because it's like, did you do those benchmarks with old processors and new processors, old processors with the patch or without the patch? Like it's, it's, a, it's messed up. It's going to take a yeah. year or two to straighten that stuff out. Yeah, we see that at work as well when we do, I mean, we basically do continuous benchmarking and, you know, was this release better than the last release? Well, what happened in December and January and, you know, all these releases of, you know, patches for Windows and just everything. It was really messy for a while. Yeah. And we had, mm. I mean, we, we weren't comparing apples to apples at all anymore. No. Spectre and Meltdown are those two, the two yeah. things that literally we're going to need a generation of processors to truly get over. Maybe two because they, huh. Intel's restructuring the way the processors fetch memory which talk yeah. the single most important thing they could do and needs to say that, you know, those performance tricks that they used had security vulnerabilities to them. So, yeah. Yeah. Crazy it's time. Got to be fun working on processors. Uh, well, I remember, I don't know, it was like I'd ask me anything with Guthrie and, they, and somebody said, what keeps you up at night? And he said, <laughs> uh, he said a <laughs> breach of Azure, right? Yeah. Which totally makes sense. Like mm. that, the, the one thing that could truly damage civilizations move to the public cloud, like this is a change in the way civilization functions, would yeah. be a significant breach of a public cloud infrastructure, which, you know, cross your fingers has never happened so far. But when I looked at the specifications on these vulnerabilities, especially for Meltdown, I'm like, right. this is exactly the kind of scary thing, a breach where... Mm-hmm. You could p- peek into somebody else's virtual machine on the same piece of hardware, potentially in in the cloud. That not that you could pick who's, not that you could pick what, but that you, you potentially could. And and that yeah, scary mm. stuff. So, need to say the patches came hard and fast. It's it's just amazing how many of our vulnerabilities come from an era where they they weren't thinking necessarily about security. You know, if you look at all the DNS issues we've had it's just very fundamental infrastructure 
just has this flaw that's been baked into how it works for so long. And, yeah. you know, it comes out a yeah. decade later. It's like, oh, this thing that we all rely on is now just fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. And, and was built with the best intent. Right? We yeah. They, you know, in most part, like just they were academics. The the web was a bunch of academics just trying to link their papers together. You made it into porn. Like, how did that happen? Right. So, (laughs) I'm always fascinated how when you guys improve performance, right, that it just seems like magic to to us. But, you know, what kinds of things do you do? I mean, are you just simply uh, doing telemetry and on how long everything takes and you look at the things that take the longest time and have the highest latency and say, how do we improve that? I mean, is it just that simple, just going down the list? And and what kinds of improvements do you do? Do you move memory around? Do you move <laughs> things into the same process? Like, what's involved in that? Yeah, I, I, I think in some ways, you're exactly right. That is all it is. It's, on one level, it really is just profiling what's at the top of the profiler and going after that. I mean, that's really the best thing you can do in any situation. But it does get more complicated. Uh, It's not just about CPU anymore, you know, especially with .NET, uh, arguably memory allocations are more important. And then these days, especially it comes down to threading issues and yeah. processor cores and is hyperthreading turned on and caches like do you, with so many threads going on with you know with hyperthreading for example it looks like two threads to your computer but they share the same cache mm, that can be right. an issue so it, it can get really messy really fast but yeah f- uh, you know theoretically it starts easy what's my most expensive thing okay how do we make that not the most expensive thing anymore and iterate repeat forever because you're never done and is this just a fresh set of eyes looking at old code now knowing that this is a performance important piece of code? Yeah, I think that can definitely happen. As much performance work as I've given code in Bing and, and the platform, mm-hmm. yeah, we have new guys come in and you know, I don't work on that specific area anymore. I haven't for years. They come in and they look and they say, hey, why are we doing this this way? Right. Why don't we change? Yeah. And I can go, eh, well, it was supposed to be this way because of this reason. And yeah, that's not really a valid reason. You should go fix it. And, you know, <laughs> absolutely new sets of eyes can can find something that even the experts can can miss. And I certainly learned from my time doing lots of web performance was you, you don't tune everything because you can't. And you really need yeah, to know yeah. what needs to be tuning. So, I never cast bad intent on any person's piece of code. It's like, this code works. It's just so popular that now mm-hmm. it needs to work faster. Exactly. Like your you, patterns mm-hmm. can change. Your your scale can go up. You can get just completely different types of data processing. Everything changes, right? No system is static. If it's static, it's dead. So, it's, you know, performance work is continuous work. It's never end. You never say, well, we've shipped performance. You're always shipping <laughs> performance. <laughs> feature, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, just a call back to that tech at Power Benchmark. It's like, yeah, .NET may have climbed to the top of it at one point, but mm-hmm. everybody else is trying to get faster too. So, the, you know, the, yeah. the tides of performance change constantly. It's not a bad thing, you know. Everybody pushing yeah. each other to be better is a good thing. Absolutely. It's a very good thing, yeah. Well, one of the things I like to tell people about here is is compare the performance over time with .NET Core and just how my recommendations have changed vis-a-vis .NET Framework. Right. You know, at the beginning, .NET Core is just open source. It was great. You couldn't do everything .NET Framework can, but, you know, if you, if you need to do portable libraries that work everywhere, you can do most of the base stuff, and it's great. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of it. There was no real performance dimension to it. Except theoretically, it's like, okay, now the masses can start contributing to right. .NET and improving things, yeah. but we weren't really seeing that. We didn't know what was going to happen. And now, it's like, oh, there's been another massive release with thousands of perf improvements. And, you know, I go to the .NET team and say, hey, can can we pretty please get these in .NET framework? These are awesome. We need these. And yeah. they, they usually do, but it's, I mean, it moves so fast you can't keep up. And it's just now... It's like, why wouldn't you be on .NET Core? And now when I go to the .NET Framework team, they're like, can you just please move to .NET Core? Everything you want is there. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you'll get it there faster. You don't have to wait for, for a new, you know, 
.NET Framework Windows release because .NET Framework is essentially a Windows component now. Right. So it, it has to go through all that extra stuff and .NET Core is just like, hey, it's open source. You get a new build, get all the latest stuff and party on. Rock on. Yeah. And as we saw with uh, with Build and uh, Scott Hunter and Hanselman's uh, talk, and we did a show with Scott as well, Hunter, uh, Core 3 is starting to bring across the some of the UI components, although they yeah. are new versions. They're, they're somewhat different. Yes. Yeah. The, the windows of .NET Framework parked on top of .NET Core. Yeah. Great. And I, I, I think that was the weakness of .NET Core is like, hey, this is great for server apps, for portable libraries. And now it's like, no, no, no. Now we can do everything. And I'm yeah. sure we will eventually transition to everything is .NET Core yeah. with you know, platform-specific libraries. Right. And still right, protecting, right. if you've got to stay on framework because you're not going to re-engineer the site, like it, I think Hunter did a really good description of, look, we can make uh, high-def wind forms, ones that, that scale well with high, yep. high uh, DPI screens, but not without breaking your old code. So mm. we're going to make a new wind form that's got all the same calls and so forth, and this is the one that runs against core. And so you can make that migration and then deal with the changes, but we won't break your old one. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, so exciting times. So I have to, I have to poke some of my my sources inside and say, hey, are you are you going to be transitioning this particular API as part of this or this other yeah. particular API? Yeah. And uh, we'll see. But yeah, I, I wish I wish I could use .NET Core work because it's it's uh, exciting stuff. That's where all the love is. Absolutely. And Ben, give us one moment here for this very important message. Support for .NET Rocks is brought to you by Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first package set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of Telerik's ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin Products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements. For more information, visit Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. And we're back. Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. It's .NET Rocks in the studio mm-hmm. recording out of order because we knew if we were going to talk to Ben about .NET performance, we had to do it after build. So even though we're publishing this ahead of the other build shows that we recorded, we're just cleaning up the order here and, and certainly an important topic, the, this uh, writing performance code. Uh, and you got a new update to the book. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think first edition came out in 2014. Right. And so it's about four years old and I wasn't really planning on doing another edition, but I kept seeing feedback that saying, oh, this is four years old and computers move so fast. I was like, all right, all right. (laughs) 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 And, and it's, you know, there are lots of updates and, you know, there's, there's a little bit more mention of .NET Core and I, a lot of people wanted more coverage of Visual Studio, which I, I had mentioned, but. I don't use Visual Studio for perf analysis as much just because of the nature of my project. So, I, I probably let a little bit of bias creep into the first edition. So, I've I fixed that. But it's it's really interesting to see what has changed and what hasn't over the last four years. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people assume, oh, four years, everything's different. Yeah. And, and the reality is, you know, a lot of the stuff on the surface is, is different. Like we were just saying with, you know, .NET Core 3, we're bringing all the Windows stuff and all the desktop stuff onto Core 3. So, there's lots of new APIs and they keep, you know, iterating on all the flavors of .NET and adding new things and new features. But the core of .NET, you know, the garbage collector, the JIT, right. those do receive iterations, but those fundamental principles of performance, those haven't really changed much. So it's it's been more of an iteration and you know fleshing out a lot of the explanations, giving more examples and and then also covering you know SIMD architecture and just you know stack alloc, a couple other things that 
just weren't in the first book, just oversights and, um, you know, more stuff with threading that that's going to be the real, I think, frontier of performance engineering in the future is Mm. how do we make everything parallel because CPUs aren't getting that much faster that quickly. So, we're all going to have to become the multi-threaded engineers. And, and, you know, that brings up another point, which is as great as the framework is performance-wise, you can still write non-performant code. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Shoot yourself in the foot. So, you know, what do we do to avoid those situations? .NET makes that so easy to do. <laughs> it's, it's, um, right. I love .NET. I love C Sharp, but yeah, it's the, the syntax and the libraries are just, you know, hey, dot .call, dot .call, dot .call, you know, use link, yeah. do all this other, these great patterns and it hides then- all of the, all of the stuff from you. So, it's, you have to understand what's going on under the covers to see if you're getting good performance. And Right. Yeah, we don't recommend um, retrieving a million rows and then just using a link in memory search to find the things that you need, for example. Yeah, it's all, well, that's all one light of code. How slow can it be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think a lot of the effort in my book and in the talks I give is to unpack that a lot. And I, I do give specific link examples and other API examples where you know, hey, this really simple query translates into five allocations and four method calls and exception handling and possible exception throwing. And you could just replace it all with a single for loop that has none of that. <laughs> and you'd, and it, you'd think that terseness would mean performant, but it, especially with link, it's not true. Yeah, it's not. And it's not true with a lot of things in, in .NET. You know, TPL or um, async await, for example, sure. is... That hides stuff from you. I don't think that's that's quite as egregious. Uh, no. it, it, it's mostly it, it's just a, TPL. Yeah, and it also takes advantage of the threads that are already out there and being used. Right. And if we can, you know, sidle up to the UI thread and do everything without affecting things, we'll do that. Yeah. It does occur to me that async await was brand new when you came out with the first edition of the book. Like, it had shipped in, like, 2013. It was. I had barely mentioned it, so I, right. I did expand coverage of that and and give some more examples. Brought on TPL Dataflow, uh, which is a cool library mm-hmm. for building workflows of, of independent processing and just automatically, it's like, hey, this output goes to this input, you figure it out. And, uh, you know, take away, it's, it's another level of abstraction. And so, at the same time, I'm describing all these levels of abstraction. I'm also saying, well, you really have to understand what goes on under the abstraction layers. Because in many cases, great performance is about removing layers of abstraction. Right. Well, and also, that's so critical. And here's just a simple example. You know, the parallel four you know, parallel mm-hmm. for each and all those things in TPL where, you you know, if you're iterating through a list or something. Yeah. I'm scared to use that because <laughs> I know that a tight loop, there's nothing faster if you're, yeah. if you, as long as you're, you know, out of it pretty quickly. But, you know, what's the guidance on using those? When does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it comes down to, to measuring it and understanding if the single loop iteration is... Uh, if parallelizing that is cheaper than the overhead of scheduling that thread. Right. You must have so, a lot of items to iterate through if that's going to actually do anything or, for you. Huh? Well, um, or each item, depending on what you're doing in yeah. the loop, is very expensive. Right. Yeah, each item is expensive, right? Yeah, then it makes sense. And you've got the example. cores available that you can say, hey, just... Just do as many of these items at the same time as you can. There's no interaction between them. Right. You know, that's another mm-hmm. thing. Um, if you put a lock inside your parallel loop, well, you no longer have a parallel loop. And I've seen that before. There's <laughs> 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 like parallel dot four, bra- open bracket, lock. Ah, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, parallel programming, asynchronous programming, it's, it's not the same thing. You have right. to think differently. You have to get in that mindset. It's not a matter of just sequencing the syntax elements one after the other, and then you get the answer at the other side. It's it's understanding 
how is my data used? Who else is using this data? Do I have two threads sharing this data? Are they doing it in a read-only manner or do they need to mm. mutate it? If mm. they can do it in a read-only manner, well, then there's no synchronization needed. Right. Can I change my processing to make everything immutable so that I can, you know, throw 30 cores at it at once? If you can't do that, well, then now you have to do synchronization. So then what's the best kind of synchronization? And uh, I generally default to simpler is better until right. proven otherwise. There's almost no reason to use any of the fancy locking mechanisms until you really, really understand what you're doing and you can really prove it. Yeah, it sounds like that's only something you put in after you've demonstrated that you have problems. Exactly. Yeah. It does occur to me that, you know, the challenge here, especially when you're measuring granular bits of code, is that as we expect that we have more cores available, which we tend to have, and you can do more asynchronicity, I'd rather have a given process take 20% more time, but I can run more of them simultaneously. It's like, hey, here's these four steps I need to do. Each one of them takes four seconds, and 16 seconds is too long to wait. But I can run them in parallel, and they all take five seconds to do, but they all run at the same time, which means the whole thing takes five seconds. Exactly. Exactly. You have to do that kind of analysis, and you have to figure out how you can scale Right. There's, it's very analogous to do you scale, you know, vertically or, or horizontally? Do I need more machines or do I just need a more powerful machine? Right. And it's, it's a similar problem to that. Some problems don't scale very well with more machines. The, some yeah. are just going to be fundamentally bounded by the CPU or the memory that you have on that machine and the number of cores you have. And, and you've just got to make do with that. I, I would also um, say that's a great situation to be in. If the the solution to going faster is more hardware, there's more <laughs> hardware available, right? Yeah, <laughs> there is, but you have to be careful there too, because that that is often the first thing that people run to, and I think that's a bit of a mistake. Sure, be yep. because sure. people assume like, oh, our software is slow. Let's just throw more machines at it because another machine is cheaper than putting a developer on it for a year. And I'm like, well, okay, first of all, if you if your developer learned a few things in 30 minutes that, that drastically improved the performance of your code, that's cheaper than a new machine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, also in for many companies, you know, I think about Microsoft and the and the huge data centers we have, if we make things run twice as fast, that's half the number of machines, and we're talking thousands of machines. Right. So, thousands up. of high-end servers is very expensive. Yeah. So, it might make sense to put half a team on just fixing this one problem if you can improve the performance by 50%. Now, 50% is a lot, but I have yeah. seen that happen. Absolutely. Wow. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. It's time to reveal the real internal code name for .NET Core 2.1. Oh. Viagra. <laughs> Contact your doctor if your performance increases for more than six hours. <laughs> .NET Priapism. Nice. Uh, you know, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from our good friends at DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. You know, everyone knows that DevExpress has great desktop controls, but their web tools are great also. They're simply amazing. They have this collection of HTML5 JavaScript controls called DevExtreme. And at the heart of the product line are these really powerful controls like grid, chart, pivot grid, tree list, and scheduler. But DevExtreme also comes with more than 50 touch-optimized client-side controls, data visualizers, navigators, editors, lists, dialogues, and notification controls, and general-purpose controls like a filter builder, range slider, file uploader, scroll view, and more. Now, since they're all HTML5, JavaScript, CSS, they include integrations with things like jQuery, Knockout, React, Ionic, and Angular. Plus, DevExtreme controls come with ASP.NET MVC and ASP.NET Core wrappers, so they're infinitely flexible. But don't take our word for it. Go for a test drive at dx.netrocks.com. That's dx.netrocks.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Linus Andrain. Hi, Reggie's Linus. Golf yes. clap you, sir. Linus just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends over there at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member of the fan club, go to .NET Rocks .com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, 
answer a few questions, and join the club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Ben, if you had 5000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Ooh, technology. Um, well, I have been very interested in getting, I don't know, getting back to my roots a little bit. Hmm. And when, when I was a teenager, I, well, I've played piano and, and done music most of my life. But as a teenager, I, I focused a lot on synthesizers and writing music and learning to compose. And so, probably mm. some music equipment and, you know, digital audio workstation type stuff and some nice speakers and things like that. That's, that's, that's where I've been trying to get back into, into music and feed that, feed that creative beast. I definitely feel that. <laughs> yeah, no question. And, and it's interesting what it does to your brain yeah. to exercise those different pieces. Like it makes you better at everything else too. I got an amazing collection of sounds um, that you can trigger with any MIDI instrument called Native Instruments Complete. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I don't have it, but uh, it's, it's on my list to look at. Yeah, it's very good. And, and we're talking about, you know, drums sampled from Abbey Road. We're talking about great grooves, um, uh, ethnic music, sounds that you've never heard before. Just great pianos, a whole bunch of great pianos, great acoustic instruments, brass strings, just amazing breadth of, of sounds. Anyway, I feel you. Yeah. So you like uh, you like contact? Yeah, yeah. It's it's okay. I mean, I'm I'm just using most of the the sounds myself. I don't really make my own samples or make my own sounds yeah. from samples. Right. So I, I just go for what's there, and then I modify them just with audio you know, with, mm -hmm. with the uh, effects and EQ right? to control them and make them exactly what I want to hear. Yeah. I've been teaching myself with uh, some of the old music that I'd written when I was younger, just, you know, loading it up in Cubase and getting a good uh, virtual piano and, and mm. applying the EQ and mastering and all that kind of stuff. And the, just, yeah, great process. So much fun. Lots of fun. Definitely. Yeah. Getting back into this, I think it was Joe Duffy on in a very early show. It was less than 200, maybe in the 150s, 160s. But he told me, I was talking about um, doing multi-threading and concurrency back then. We didn't have all the stuff we had now. We had threads. And I believe we had the asynchronous model. But I was working on handling, you know, multi-threaded servers and that kind of stuff and sockets and trying to figure out what was the best way to you know, put locks on, on code that, uh, uh, that, you know, gets called per client. And he gave me a very astute tip, which is typically you don't want to put locks around code. You want to put locks around accessing the shared resources. Right. Yes, exactly. You know, like if you've got a big collection that you're going to pull from and send out to a bunch of people, you want to lock that collection while you're doing that. And then release it as soon as possible. Yep. Yeah, there's a hierarchy of synchronization uh, primitives that you want to use. And at the very top of that hierarchy is no synchronization necessary. Right. <laughs> and it's, but it often requires you to really architect and design your program very well so that you can ensure that at most of those points where that data needs to be shared, it's read-only, it's immutable, mm -hmm. or it's not touched by multiple threads. Right. And most people, I think, could do that if they really sat down and thought about it. Most problems can be reduced at least partially to that model, but it can mm -hmm. be really tricky to do that. Um, especially for everything. This is very much the functional mindset, this you know, immutability exactly. by default mindset that just lends itself to more parallelism. Yes. And there's trade-offs, right? You know, mm -hmm. you could take that to the extreme and say, well, I'll just make a copy of all the data that I need to share. I'm like, well, yeah. all right, now you're, <laughs> now you're just buying other problems. Yeah. Does that mean when one client changes it that you have to copy the whole thing again? That's yeah. just kind of silly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's other models too. You could have copy on write, which, you know, 
those kinds of things are built into the OS at all sorts of places, and you can do that in your own program. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you can't get that pure immutability, then, you know, go, right, restrict the scope, use simple locking protocols, really figure out exactly how that data needs to be shared and why. It's not just a matter of, well, I know this needs to be read by another thread, so I'm going to put a lock on it just to be safe. It's really understanding the data access at a very deep and precise level. Yeah, I, I... I, I'm very grateful for frameworks like SignalR, you know, and uh, the the queuing system and all of these great things that just deal with it for you. Yes. It's just such yeah. a luxury. <laughs> if you have the option of using a framework that does what you want, then use it. Use because it. Because you're guaranteed to get it wrong in the first 20 iterations. Right. Don't write multi-threaded code. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do it unless you have to. And then if you have yeah. to, look again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm really, really sure. But task parallel library strikes me as a safer way to go about it when you start thinking maybe more threads would help me. And at least you're yeah. living in a framework that, that does some smarts and sort of protects you from yourself. It does. It does in many ways. It, it handles the threading aspect of it very well. It doesn't necessarily help you with that data protection, the synchronization part as much, but it does help you. It's like, okay, I know I got a thread pool. What's the easiest way to use the thread pool so I don't waste time spinning up threads? What's the easiest way to just call this method? And then when that method's done, call this other method. So, it makes it very easy to structure your application. Mm -hmm. But the synchronization and data protection is still on you. Yep. So, I've been forced to use task.run a couple of times, which is great because if you've got some code that isn't, you know, if you've got a method that isn't yours and it's not asynchronous, you can just wrap that in a task run and await that and it'll work. In fact, you could just task run and have a, you know, an anonymous method and just do it yourself. But so, what's the difference between doing that, you know, under the hood task run versus async await versus say, you know, making a wrapper function that's async and then, you know, you still have to, I guess you still have to call it, you have to await it somehow. Uh, Yeah. So, if you're just going like using threads directly or, you know, the old asynchronous programming model, I think is what they called it, where you have the, you know, iasync result type of thing. Those methods are still there, but I I just think of them as deprecated. I mean, those are using threads directly, right? And you have to hand, you have to hook everything up and it's, it's very low level. It's not Win32 low level, but it's low level for .NET. It feels clunky, especially today. Mm. Um, TPL is, is one layer above that and uh, just makes it look much more like C-sharp. I almost think of the iAsync result APIs as, oh, this kind of feels like C++ programming. Yeah. And TPL is very object-oriented. You just have, you have continuations and, and you can just call dot .wait. If you really don't care about performance, you can wait on things. But um, async await is, is a... I don't want to say syntactic sugar. I think it's more than that, but it's it is a different way of interacting with TPL. Mm-hmm. Uh, underneath, async await just becomes TPL calls. Interesting. It does have its own features, but the cool thing about async await is it makes your code look easier. Right. It makes it look synchronous. And I, I have an example in my book, actually, where I take some uh, uh, some compression code. I think it's reading and writing uh, a file. It's reading from a file, compressing it, and writing it out to another file. And I first yeah. wrote that completely synchronously, like, you know, stream.read, and then stream, compress, stream.write. Yep. And then to make that asynchronous, well, if you use TPL, it, it will look very different. Like you're going to have continuations and callbacks and you've lost the structure of the code. And if you're used to that, that's fine. But if you introduce async await, now you just decorate these methods. Instead of calling a read, you call read async, right? Write async. And your code looks 99% the same. Or you could just do await task.run with a lambda to the call to the synchronous code. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's lots of ways of, of interacting with it. But fundamentally, it, it all goes back to TPL and and uh, scheduling these threads and these callbacks in a way that's very easy to interact with. Yeah. It's very cool. <laughs> I'm also fascinated by the prospect that, you know, they did actually make it faster. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where benchmarking comes yeah, in. Yeah. You've yes. got to have good benchmarks. And I've certainly seen cases where folks have gone and spent, you know, days tinkering with things like TPL and just come up with no significant net benefit. Yeah. You really have to understand your constraints. Are you are you really limited by CPU? Can you? Does it make sense to process something in parallel? Do you have enough resources to process it in parallel? If you do split it up, are you now introducing another constraint? Right. You know, maybe you're reading stuff off disk and when you're doing that serially, the disk is not a bottleneck, but now it is. You know, if you've got 32 threads all trying to read different places on the disk, well, you might have just made it worse, you know. And maybe you just throw an SSD at it, but that, you know, you're, it's a balancing act. Yeah, if you're going to fix it with hardware, you shouldn't have tinkered with the code, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've, you've really got to think this stuff out. Performance engineering, you know, I, as I said, on one level, it's finding the most expensive thing and, and fixing it. But on another level, that interaction between software and hardware is getting ever more complex mm -hmm. because there are so many options for you to change the performance constraints of your hardware and you can drastically affect things. And, and with .NET, I think it's in some ways more complex. We have better tools to find it, but there are more things you have to look at. Yeah, you know, the if you talk to people who are serious, you know, total wax on, on performance, that's all they think about they start talking about not using .NET at all. You know, this, <laughs> you know, living in a in a garbage-collected, memory-managed, jitted world yeah. is just an anathema to, to performance nuts. Yeah, and I don't go that far. Yeah. I mean, I can there, – there are certainly problems that that need that approach. But my approach is um, – you know, I'm not doing things on the nanosecond level. I'm sure. doing things on the microsecond and millisecond level. Mm -hmm. And .NET is more than enough for that. I, to and I it's totally better agree. than most people think. My, my usual response to them is, the one thing I know for, for sure with my .NET app is that my performance problem is not caused by memory leak. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I know. Yeah. Well, I don't, you'd be surprised. You, you can definitely have memory leaks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a cache, a cache that never lets anything go is... Yep. Uh, it's He's a kind of memory leak. You can optimize the garbage <laughs> collector. If you understand the garbage collector, and that's a big part of the education I do, is like, hey, look, if you understand how the garbage collector works, you can drastically improve the state of your performance. Hmm. Just by understanding that and making a few simple tweaks to your code, you will no longer spend 50% of your time just collecting memory, which seems to be the default state for some people who start and it's like, oh, allocate here, allocate here, call this. It's like, no, 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 understand how this works and, and play to that. And you can see huge improvements. Uh, you know, where I've seen a big problem is with disk write cache. Yeah. You know, if you, many hard drives come with that enabled and that causes all manner of problems. Why do they do that? <laughs> huh, just in IO getting backed up or... Yeah, but in also loss of data. I mean, when you oh, talk yeah. about asynchronous code... Oh, I want to write to my file system asynchronously. But the problem, of course, is if you call two writes to two different files at the same time, you still have a physical limitation of the disk is only going to do one of those at a time, right? That's yeah. to put it in a queue and then process that queue on a different thread synchronously. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. There's no, there's, well, I mean, there's no one right answer. Right, it's it's about measuring and and seeing what mm. happens when you tweak different things. Um, it, it can get real tricky when when you get the hardware involved. You know, if yeah. you're maxing out the disk, yeah, there's sometimes there's no great answer if you're just pegging that disk and things right. are getting lost in the buffer. Yeah, got to rethink things. <clears throat> when it comes to tinkering with garbage collection, is there really anything I need to do beyond just go GC collect? Uh, well, you shouldn't do that. No <laughs> <laughs> place to start. Yeah, you shouldn't call GC Collect unless you know you need to, right. right? And that's the thing is you have to understand exactly why you should never call that. And then you have to be able to say, I am disregarding that because of whatever reason you have. Because right. I know better. And there are situations where you can know better. Mm -hmm. But I would say 99% of people don't. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the thing you have to understand with GC is... Uh, the, the time it takes to perform a GC is proportional to the amount of alive memory there is. Mm -hmm. mm. So, if you have 
a lot of memory. You could have a million objects, and if they're very temporary and you use those million objects and then there's no more reference to them, the GC doesn't even see it. So it takes no time to process those million objects. Right. But if you if you have the, that million objects and you keep a reference to it, and then a GC happens and it has to traverse those million objects and it has to promote them now to Gen 1, and then there's another GC that still sees those million objects. Now it's in Gen 2. Hmm. Then that's when you start running into problems. You want to avoid that that kind of promotion. You want the pattern of my memory allocations come in, they go away, the memory lives very short, very ephemeral. We call right. those ephemeral allocations. Or you want memory that lasts forever. Right. So it essentially goes yeah. into Gen 2 and stays there forever. Um, essentially, yeah, it becomes a memory leak, you know, it's pooled. <laughs> yeah, but a, but a valuable memory leak, right? Good cache yes, objects exactly. sit in Gen yeah. 2 and they tend to be sit. large, which is why we cache them and they're stable. Exactly. Exactly. And you, re, you reuse them over and over again. So, that's the pattern you want. If you can master that pattern, you know, there's a lot of other tricks and, and ways to optimize your code, but that's the fundamental way the garbage collector works. And if you can do that, then you're well on your way to reduce the amount of time the GC spends in your code. It really um, is a little cognitive dissonance for most people, I think, because we've made um, programming easier with the .NET framework for mere mortals to do amazing things. And then on top of that, we're talking about Gen 1 and Gen 2 and you know, CPU rings and things, and uh, uh, it sort of goes over most people's heads. But I guess what I'm saying is, you know, if this stuff sounds like gobbledygook to you, you might want to make friends with that nerd in the company who does get get into this kind of stuff and just, uh, you know, ask for some guidance based on your code. You know, or it's actually not all that difficult. I mean, especially when it comes to the garbage collector. You just got to do a little research. That's all. Yeah, it's just knowledge. And, and unfortunately, you can find bits and pieces of it throughout the internet and on Microsoft Docs. But yeah. getting an overall picture of, you know, this is how you write good .NET code, that can be a little difficult because especially, like you said, when you start out, it's just so easy and you can just get into it and you're done. Right. You've written your program, you walk away. The other thing I tell people is, the amount of effort you put into performance needs to be proportional to the amount of performance you expect out of the system. Hmm. If you're just writing toys, probably don't care. You know, just write your toy and be done. But if you're running something that's going to run on a thousand Azure instances, well, then you should probably think about this a little better because you're paying for that. Yeah. You know, every cycle, if you're using Azure Compute, you're now paying for CPU. It's no longer a sunk cost for you. Right. And it, it's, it needs to be proportional to the need. And so, you know, most people don't need to optimize to the nth degree for GC. But if you do, well, you've got to expend the effort, learn what you need to know, and keep iterating on that to eke out better and better performance. And yeah, you could yeah. eventually get to the point where it's like, well, .NET just isn't going to work. But I don't think that's most problems out there. Yeah, it seems like a very rare scenario. And and and. I would think if I got pulled into something like that where they're starting to talk about that kind of timing, it's like, we're in the wrong place. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. What can we pull out of this and do a different way to uh, yeah. to deal with those millisecond timings? But, yeah. But, I, I mean, I would say this. You know, um, you know in, in .NET, memory is CPU. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it, you're paying for it one way or the other. And, you know, especially these days, you know, um, more and more people are now paying others for CPU cycles. Mm. So, you no longer in your company just have a computer that you can do whatever you want on, cost $2,000, $5,000, whatever, and you can just use it. The electricity might be negligible and it doesn't really matter. But now if you're scaling up and you need thousands of machines and now you're paying Microsoft for it because there's only Microsoft Azure, of course, right? <laughs> there's, that's, that's all there is. Oh, just yeah. want to let everybody know you're definitely paying Azure for, for your compute cycles. Well, now your optimization might really matter to the bottom line because you're, you're now paying per minute or, you know, per machine or, you know, whatever it is. It's, it, there's a much stronger correlation between the 
performance of your code and how much money you spend running that code. I, it's at least more measurable. Yeah. And I kind of like this idea of getting to a place where we could start doing dollars per transaction, both in and yeah. out. And then, you, <laughs> well, because I, you know, we did a lot of, a lot of years working in the e-commerce space where I would look at performance tuning and break it down. We knew what the revenue per hour of that e-commerce site was, and you could yeah. make a case for a budget for three people for three months to get this kind of return. You know, you'd hypothesize we're going to shave this much time. We expect this revenue increase. Heck, I built an yeah. appliance yep. on the back of that idea. Yeah. I think that's going to become more and more important. People are going to start looking at that and say, like, hey, why are we spending a thousand, you know, why are we paying for a thousand servers when 500 will do? Can we get to 500? Can we get to 100? And, you know, with, the, you know, all the sloppy code that I've seen, I'm, I'm confident many teams could reduce their, their CPU load by 90%. Yeah. On the other hand, don't do this because the more you pay Azure, <laughs> the, the better my stock looks. And, and that's what's paying my salary. So, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> That's great. So, Ben, uh, are there any other resources that you want to mention before we sign off here? Stuff we can link to? Your blog, for example? Yeah, I'm not a strong blogger, but I I am throwing stuff out there. I'll I'll be doing some more in the next few months. Uh, My blog is philosophicalgeek.com. Love it. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, I've had that forever. And it's, yeah, I'm, I'm putting stuff up there. And... Yeah, the book is, uh, you can find it everywhere books are sold and and uh, enjoy it. As long as it's on my Kindle and it's on my Kindle, then it's you real. Get it, you can get it on your Kindle. That's it. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. It's been great talking to you. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a